the gospel. It's a story of how God created us to be in a relationship with himself. But time and time again, we stubbornly go on our own way. More importantly, it's a story of how God doesn't give up. He loves us so much that when we couldn't save ourselves, he sent his son to save us. He sent Jesus. How we come to know Jesus is the most important story in our lives. Not only is it the story that saved us, but it is also a story that has the power to help others. We call those stories testimonies because they tell the truth of who Jesus is. They testify about what he has done for us. And by sharing our story, we reveal his goodness and his grace to others. There is power in telling your story of how Jesus changed your life. And I believe that story can change the life of people around me. So I will tell the story of who I was and who I am becoming in Jesus. I will tell the story of what he has done in and through me. I will tell the story of how Jesus saved my life. I will testify. Well, good morning, Riverview. It's good to be with you all. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here. So a couple weeks ago, we started in this Testify series. And each week so far, if you've been with us or maybe caught the message online, you've noticed that we've really been encouraged to, to take God's Word and really apply it and live it out in our lives throughout the week. And last week, we were given this evangelism challenge of recording our story or our testimony. We were encouraged to, to get some time alone and, and just to reflect on, on the work that God has done in our lives. And maybe we wrote it down or, or maybe we did a voice memo or maybe we were even bold enough like Becky and Tom and Carol uh, who shared their testimony with our church family this morning uh, before the service. But, but for me, as I took the time and I began writing down bits and pieces of my testimony, I, the things that came to mind were kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. There were some very great moments, some, some life-changing moments in a very good way. But then on the other end, there was very negative experiences. There was moments of struggle, seasons of, of loss and of, of suffering. And, you know, as I spent time this week, and what's interesting, you know, as I look back on, on those m- memories now, I actually see those moments of adversity differently than I did when I was walking through them as a younger person. Uh, when I was younger, I-, I wanted nothing more than to be out of them, right? To be out of the struggle, to be out of the difficulty, and just to be in a much better spot in my life. But now, looking back and really taking time to think about God and his presence amidst those challenges, I can see some good that has come from those. I can see how in those moments, God was drawing me close to him, and he was sustaining me, and I was experiencing life in him in ways that I never thought that I would. You know, human suffering, it's a topic that we don't often know how to deal with when it comes to our Christian faith. Suffering can often lead us to, to question God, to question his plans, his, his goodness, if he's even there at all. And if he's there, does he care? You know, a recent Barna study came out earlier this year, and it was called Doubt in the Christian Faith. I've talked about this before. It was a really interesting study, but they they just looked at all the reasons why followers of Jesus experience uncertainty in their faith, and human suffering was very close to the top of the list. Negative experiences that maybe we've walked through or that we've witnessed in other people. And the question that we're left to wrestle with is this, how do we reconcile 
the hardship and difficulties that we go through with the truth of God's goodness, with the truth of his presence and his care in our lives. You know, if you've read uh, any of the Bible, you'll, you'll see that there's a lot of testimonies. There's a lot of people that we have on the pages of Scripture that we see how God has worked in and through them throughout all of history. And over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to meet some of these men and women in the Bible. We're going to hear their stories. And today, we're going to go all the way back to the Old Testament, and we're going to meet a man named Joseph. And Joseph, as we hear his story, we're going to see a story of, of suffering and of adversity and hardship. But as we hear it, we're going to see something really powerful. We're going to see how that suffering, it didn't cause Joseph to, to retreat and pull away from God, but it actually led him closer to him. You know, if Joseph was, was here today, if he was sharing his Riv Church My Story with us and we saw it before the, the service, I think it would be one sentence. I think his story would be this, what others intended for evil, God used for good. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis, the very first book of your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. And Genesis, very first book of the Bible, that's where we really find out how everything began. We see in the very beginning how God created, and he created the earth, and he created everything, and he actually created humanity. We are the crowning jewel of God's creation. And then very soon after that, we see how sin entered the world, how sin entered through Adam and Eve and how it infected our human relationships, how it impacted all of creation. But then a little bit later in Genesis, we see how God began this work of redemption, of, of restoring creation. And he was going to do that through humanity. He was going to do that through a family. And he chose an ordinary couple, Abraham and Sarah, and that was who he was going to work through. And Joseph, in that family line, he is one of their great grandsons. And we meet Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, and his story takes us to the very end of Genesis. And we actually see that Joseph is one of 12 brothers. And very early on, we actually see these interesting relational dynamics at play with Joseph and his dad and all of his brothers. So this is Genesis 37, starting in verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph. So I'm going to stop there. Israel is Jacob, and Jacob is Israel. The Bible kind of inter, uh, uses those two names interchangeably, but we're going to call him Jacob. It's just easier. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was, was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Okay, so right off the bat, we, see, we meet Jacob, who's dad, and we see that he has 12 sons, and we see just unashamedly that he loved Joseph more than his other brothers. Now, go back in time to when you were a kid. Do you remember the famous kid question that you would ask your parents about you and your siblings? Mom, dad, who do you love more? Do you love me or my sister? Right? The, just so you know, parents, the right answer is we love you the same. Okay, that's the correct answer. But, you know, Jacob missed the parenting class, I think. Because when he was asked, hey, dad, who do you love the most? Oh, it's not you. <laughs> it's Joseph. I love Joseph the most. Like, I can't even imagine that, you know. But the thing is, this was actually a normal answer in Jacob's family. Because if you go back a little bit in the book of Genesis, we see Jacob as a kid. And we see his brother Esau 
as a kid, and his parents had favorites. Jacob was mom's favorite, and Esau was dad's favorite. So Jacob was just doing what he knew. But of his 12 sons, he had a favorite, and it was Joseph. We actually see here, it's really interesting, generational patterns of sin and favoritism in this first family, this family that God had chosen to work through. And we see that, that Jacob's love for his son, it resulted in a gift. It was this long-sleeved robe from some call this the robe of many colors, some translations. So if you're a fan of musicals, this was the amazing Technicolor dream coat, right, that Joseph had. But this favoritism, it caused him to be hated by his brothers. So much so that these 11 other guys in Joseph's life, they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. They avoided him. They didn't want to talk to him. And this wasn't because of anything Joseph did. Like, I don't think Joseph just walked around strutting in his coat. I really don't think that. I think it was because of their dad's preferential treatment of him. But this hatred, we see it's stoked even further when Joseph begins having dreams. As a teenager, Joseph starts having these dreams, and, and all of his brothers are bowing down to him in these dreams. Now, Joseph, I, he wasn't very wise at this time of his life because he tells his brothers, hey, guys, guess what? Listen to my dream. <laughs> and he tells them all. And all the brothers, they just, they're boiling. They can't take it. One day, Jacob, the, the, the dad, he says, Joseph, go check on your brothers out in the field who, who are doing work. And this is what happened to him that day. This is Genesis 37, verse 18. It says, the brothers saw Joseph in the distance. And before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Then verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Okay, so just on this normal day, all the brothers see their younger brother Joseph walking up, probably wearing that long-sleeved robe that their dad had given him. And they just can't contain their hatred anymore. Like, we have to get rid of him. It's too much. But as they do, they don't kill him. They eventually settle on selling him into slavery because he is our brother, after all. It's kind of the, the, the reasoning there. But, but just put yourself in, in Joseph's colorful coat for a minute. Imagine that happening to you. That day, all you did was what your dad asked you to. Go check on your brothers. You're being an obedient son, and you end up a slave being taken off to a foreign land. We don't know. The, the, the Bible doesn't tell us any, anything in the Joseph or his, his heart or if he was prideful or arrogant or anything like that. All we know that day was he did not deserve what happened to him. It was undeserved. He was sinned against by people in his life, his family. And we find out that Joseph was only 17 years old when this happened to him. The brothers, they cover up their sin by taking Joseph's robe and dipping it in blood and bringing it back to their dad. You know what they say? They say, it was this year's son's. They don't even say his name. Hey, dad, was this your son's robe? And Jacob just weeps. He's like, yes. So Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead when he's really being carried off 
to Egypt. We see his story continue on in Genesis 39, uh, starting in verse uh, 10. But before we get there, we actually see in verse 2 that it says, The Lord was with Joseph during this time, and he became a successful man. So Joseph, he was enslaved by this Egyptian ruler named Potiphar. And when he was there, he was so faithful at his job. He was a great slave that he was raised up to be second in command to Potiphar in his house. Potiphar could trust him with everything. And so what happened was Potiphar would leave and Joseph would kind of run the household. But Potiphar's wife started taking a liking to Joseph. And she wanted to get him to sleep with her. And Joseph said, no, I'm never going to do that. How could I dishonor my my, uh, master and how could I sin against God? Over and over again, she tries. And look at what happens because of Joseph's obedience here. This is Genesis 39, starting in verse 10. Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me. And I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. And then she told the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But then I screamed for help. He left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife had told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and he had Joseph thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. So again, Joseph's story, we see him on the receiving end of lies and dishonesty, very similar to the brothers. He suffers at the hand of a vengeful and hateful person who despised him for what? For doing good, for being faithful, for not sinning with them. And Potiphar, he's tricked into believing this, that that Joseph abused his power, that he abused his, his trust, and he slept with his master's wife. And it's not surprising that Potiphar didn't ask Joseph about it. Joseph was a slave. Of course Potiphar is going to trust his wife. So right away, he throws Joseph into prison. Again, we see Joseph suffering for choosing the right thing. We see a glimpse of what happens to Joseph in prison, and it's very similar to what happened when he got to Egypt. This is Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph again and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. So even amidst an unjust sentencing and an unjust imprisonment, God was with Joseph. Joseph chose to be faithful again in this place he never thought that he would be. And as that happened, God actually raised him up within the prison. He became second in command to the warden. He, he was faithful. And when he's there, two trusted servants of the Pharaoh show up. The Pharaoh's upset with them. They, they show up in prison, and Joseph is assigned to them. So these are two people that know the most powerful man in the world. And these two servants... 
they have a dream in the same night, and they're really stressed out about it, and they're really distraught. So they wake up, and they're like, we had this dream. And Joseph's like, all right, tell it to me. Maybe God will, will interpret this dream for you. And the first, the first servant tells Joseph the dream, and, and Joseph hears it, and he tells him, That's re- your dream is good. The Pharaoh is going to actually restore you to your position in, in three days. This is what he says in Genesis 40, verse 13. In just three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were the cupbearer. So that servant's thinking, this is fantastic. I mean, that's great news. That's what you want to hear. When you don't know what a dream means, you want it to be good. But then the second servant thinks, he had a good dream. I'm going to tell him my dream. That's great. And he tells him his dream, and this is how Joseph responds. This is verse 18. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. Now, okay, I don't know about you. Joseph needs a tip here on how to share bad news. <laughs> like, he used the exact same phrase. Like, I just, I just want to tell him, like, he just says, I'm really sorry. Uh, this is not good for you. Yeah, I mean, but he's like, your head's going to be raised up too. And it's going to be gone. Like, I'm just thinking, Joseph, come on, man. But, but after Joseph shares with these servants, he talks to the first servant, and he's like, hey, when you get restored, can you just do one thing for me? Can you tell the Pharaoh my story? Can you just remember me? <laughs> can you remember what I just did for you? Because I, I actually don't really deserve to be here. Right? I haven't done anything wrong. So the servant obtains his freedom, and he goes, and he forgets Joseph. He doesn't tell Pharaoh about him at all. And look at the next verse of chapter 41. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. Two more years go by. Two years where Joseph is still there, wondering if he's ever (laughs) going to get out. But on this day, the Pharaoh has a dream. And you know what the servant does? Oh, shoot. Hey, Pharaoh, there was a guy (laughs) in prison who helped me out when I had a dream. Maybe you should call him. And the Pharaoh does that. The Pharaoh brings Joseph up to his quarters. He cleans him up. And he's like, I have a dream. I heard you can do something about that. And look at what Joseph says. Verse 41, verse 16. He says, I am not able to. Joseph answered, it is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph goes on and he interprets this dream and he, he gives advice to Pharaoh on what he should do because the dream has to do with the next 15-ish years of Pharaoh's life. And Joseph said, hey, Pharaoh, this is what you're going to want to do with this interpretation. You're going to want to raise up a really wise and discerning person who's going to help lead this country through this time. And Pharaoh's like, Look like, looks like I found him. Joseph gets hired by the Pharaoh as the vice president of Egypt. He goes from being second in command in prison to second in command to the most powerful man in the world in one day. Things are looking up. But this is when the brothers re-enter the story. Pharaoh's dream was that 
Egypt was going to have seven years of abundance, and then they were going to have a seven-year famine. So Joseph tells the Pharaoh, hey, in these seven years, you need to stockpile food. You need to collect as much food as you can so that you can actually survive the seven years of famine. And so Joseph is tasked with managing all that, and he's actually distributing all the food to everyone who comes to him. And one day, 10 of his brothers show up in Egypt, and they say, we're hungry. Our families are starving, and we need food. Joseph recognizes them right away, but they don't recognize Joseph. I mean, why would they? The last time they saw him, they threw him in a pit. He was 17, and they, he was carried off as a slave. They would have no reason to believe that Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world. But they asked Joseph for food, and we actually, I'm not going to go into all of it, but Joseph kind of tugs him around a little bit. <laughs> he kind of messes with him a little, I think. But he sends them home with food, and he puts all their money back in their bag. So he freaks them out. They think, oh my gosh, he's going to think we stole all this food, right? But Joseph did that because he wanted to see his younger brother, Benjamin. He hadn't seen him in, in years. So this was kind of a way to get him back. But as they consider this, all, like this whole plan that Joseph says, I want to see your youngest brother who you didn't bring, they begin talking about that day. They begin talking about the worst day of Joseph's life when he was 17 in front of him because they don't know that it's him. Look at what they say. Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they said to each other, obviously, with this plan that this Egyptian ruler is telling them they have to, to do, we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That's why this trouble has come upon us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? Reuben's the oldest. And that day, he's like, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> but everyone else said that we should. But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph turned away from them and he wept. Can you imagine hearing your brothers talk about that day, the worst day of your life, the day we find out he pleaded with them, guys, don't do this. Don't sell me into slavery. You don't know what you're doing. The deep distress that he felt, so much so that Joseph is reliving that day, he begins to weep. He just feels the weight of how he was sinned against by his family, but now he's in a position where he can do something about it. He, his dreams when he was 17, they're coming true. Do you remember what he dreamt about? His brothers would bow down to him, that he would rule over them. Joseph is in power over his brothers. He can get him back. He can do it. He can do whatever he wants. But he never sins against them. He cares for his brothers. Over the next few chapters, we see Joseph send his brothers home with food. We see them bring back the youngest brother, Benjamin. And that is when Joseph finally says, it's me. I'm your brother. Look at how he reveals his identity to his brothers. This is Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. 
because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land for these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph, that day, reveals his identity to his brothers. And and when he does, do you notice what he says? Does he list all the suffering? Does he say, how could you? What were you thinking that day? You know I was a slave in Egypt, in Potiphar's house? You know I was unjustly imprisoned? You know I was forgotten about? No, he doesn't do any of that. Instead he says, guys, don't worry about it. God was with me in all of that. Look at what God has done through this. Look at exactly, he says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. God sent me ahead of you. God sent me to establish a remnant to save our family. Therefore, you know what? It wasn't even you who did this. It was God. Joseph had come to see that everything that he went through in his life was because of God. And his plan for him, as a 17-year-old kid, he could not have imagined how his life of imprisonment, how his life as a slave, it would have led to saving all of Egypt, to would have led to saving all of his family. But this is the way God worked to bring about his glory in the world. At the very end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, the, the, the dad, finally dies. And all the brothers are scared because they actually think Joseph is just treating them well because Jacob's still alive. So once Jacob dies, they think, Joseph's going to take us all as slaves. And look at what Joseph says. This is the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. Joseph said to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you. I'll take care of your children. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. You planned evil against me, and God used it for good. As Joseph looked back at his life, he saw God. He saw his good purpose amidst his pain and his suffering. God used him his life as a slave, his life in prison, to raise him up to a position of leadership that would not only save Egypt, but save his family. And it actually preserved a remnant of God's people. And we see, as we continue to read the Bible, that a very important person would come out of that remnant. One who would come to the earth, live a perfect life, die on a cross for our sins, and resurrect from the dead. See, Joseph's story, it's one of many that we have in our Bibles. And it's really one that we're, we see God being glorified amidst adversity. Where we see God's will coming about in the world through a person who remained faithful in their suffering. And while it's really tempting for us to look at this story of Joseph just through the lens of him and, and think, oh, that's a great example. We have to look through this story through a different filter. We have to see how this story, what it reveals to us about God. 
Because at its core of the Bible, it's not about us. No, God wrote the Bible. It's his book, and it's about him. It's about who he is, the work that he does to restore us, to restore creation back to what he had intended it to be. And in this story of Joseph and his faithfulness amidst adversity, we actually see two very clear qualities of God's character. We see his sovereignty, and we see his providence. The sovereignty of God, it's a beautiful doctrine that we believe as Christians, and it's that all things that happen in the world, positive and negative, everything, it's all under God's rule and his control. That everything that we go through in our life, God is more intimately aware of it than we are and will ever be. But with that, we also see God's providence, his care, his protective care that he extends to us amidst everything that we go through. God ministers to us in our times of need. He, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't check out in the good times and he's present with us in, in, in the bad. No, it's, it's, he's with us all the time. See, it's these aspects of God's character. They help us see the purpose and meaning that we walk through when we walk through suffering. Because in Joseph's life, God did not leave him in those difficult moments. I imagine when he was a slave in Egypt, when he was in prison, he thought, God, where are you? But he was with him. And I think we can start to believe this because we often think that if my life isn't going the way I wanted, God must not be with me. We so often want, we so often measure God's faithfulness by how comfortable we are, how, how well things are going for us. But see, in God's wisdom and in his sovereignty, he doesn't always take us out of the place of suffering that we're in, but instead, he actually enters into it with us. Someone else in the Bible who experienced significant hardship was the Apostle Paul. After he became a Christian, he was persecuted all the time in his faith. And he actually wrote a letter to the church in Rome, and he talked about the purpose in the suffering how he thinks about suffering, what we can trust with our suffering. Romans 8, verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. See, Christians in Rome were being persecuted. Many of them were dying because they were Christians. Paul almost died numerous times because of his faith. Paul was able to write that verse from a deeply personal place. In Joseph's story, it's really similar. There is purpose in hardship and in suffering. Even though there are moments that we wouldn't choose to go through ourselves, God is at work within them, either drawing us closer or using those moments so that we can minister to others. God ministers to us in our darkest moments so that we can minister to others in theirs. C.S. Lewis talked about this. C.S. Lewis, he's one of my favorite writers, favorite theologians. I was a, I'm a huge fan of Chronicles of Narnia and, and all of his theology books. But, but his story, it's marked with pain. C.S. Lewis lost his mother as a child. He suffered a respiratory illness in his teens. He, he fought and was wounded in World War I. And, and he even lost his wife just four years after they were married. He was married later in life, in his 50s. But then his wife died 
four years later. And he processed all of this pain in a book that he wrote called The Problem of Pain. And this is what he said about God's, how God works amidst those situations. He, he writes this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, in the dark moments, God ministers to us. And in our response to suffering, how we continue to trust God and stay faithful, that is a witness to the world around us. It's a megaphone to the world that doesn't often care at all about God or even believe that he exists. But it's a megaphone that shares who he is. God is sovereign. He cares for us in a providential way. And because of that, we can trust him. We can draw near to him when we experience hardship and suffering. See, that's why I think if Joseph were telling his story to us today, he would do it with one sentence. What others intended for evil, God used for good. And while Joseph, that was his story, he foreshadowed one who would come and who would experience greater pain and suffering that God would use for good. Joseph's story, it points us to Jesus. It points us to the gospel and the work that he accomplished for us. Eric Raymond, he's a pastor and he's a writer and he, he compared, he looked at the life of Jesus and the life of Joseph and he, and he put all the similarities in a list and it's so powerful. I just want to read it here. He writes this, like Joseph, Jesus was the object of his father's special love. He had promises of divine exaltation. Jesus was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. Jesus was falsely accused. He was faithful amid temptation. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. Jesus saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. He's exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose, even though it brings him intense physical harm. Jesus is the instrument God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bless his people. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of his family. He gives hungry people bread. And finally, people must bow their knee before him. In the sovereignty of God, Joseph's story foreshadows one who would come. The story of a Savior who would bless the world through his sacrifice. The story of one of what others intended for evil, God used for good. But in the suffering that Jesus was about to go through, in his humanity, he prayed that it wouldn't have to happen. The night before in the garden, he's like, Father, if there's some other way, can you, can you just take this cup from me. None of us want to suffer. Jesus, in that moment, asked for the cup to be taken away, but he ended his prayer like this, not my will, but yours be done. And we saw God's will done that next day. Jesus went to the cross, and he died for the sin of the world. Through his faithfulness amid intense suffering, he redeemed those he had come to the world to save. Out of suffering has come the greatest gift we have ever been given, salvation. 
a way for us to know God and experience life in him. Each week in this Testify series, we have an evangelism challenge. Sometime this week, something for you to do, to consider, to put your faith into practice. And this week, it has to do with our faithfulness amidst adversity. It's just three words. This week, I want to encourage you, share your suffering. Share your suffering. This can be with a fellow believer, or it can be with someone in your life that you're trying to reach with the gospel. But this challenge, it's meant for us to really consider God's presence and his work in our life amidst our suffering. You know, what you choose to share, it might be a way that you suffered years ago that still impacts you. Maybe it was at the hands of others, what others intended for evil. You know, maybe your suffering is because of decisions you've made. Maybe you're in a season of suffering right now. I want to encourage you, be open with your suffering this week. And as you do that, you may not be able to understand how God is using that yet. Joseph, at the end of his life, what did he say? All these things you guys did to me, God was glorified in. But it was kind of toward the end of his life. But see, by faith, we strive to believe that God will use our suffering for good, for our good, for his glory. The scriptures promise that to us. What others intend for evil, God can use for good. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Because that is true, this week, strive to share your suffering with someone. And as you do that, rest in the truth that amidst your suffering, God loves you that he's with you, and that he's making you more and more like his son as you trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I think about Joseph's story, <laughs> um, it's sobering, God, that everything that he went through <laughs> And how he continued to trust you, remain faithful wherever he was. God, there have been moments in my life that I have not been faithful in my suffering, in my hardship. God, moments where I've blamed you or not trusted you amidst those. But God, there have been times where I can see your good purpose amidst pain. And God, we're so grateful for the promise in Scripture that you work out all things for the good of those who love God, who love you, and who are called according to your purpose. God, when we glorify you in adversity, when we continue to have faith amidst suffering, that is a megaphone to the world of who you are, that you are worthy of our worship, that you are worthy of our faith and our trust. Help us be a people 
who amidst our suffering, we put the megaphone to our mouth and we, we share your goodness, that we will remain faithful to you amidst all of it. And God, we thank you for the promise that you are with us more intimately than we would ever know in our hardship, in our pain. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.